welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Rob Pillins, founder of and principal consultant at Planet Consulting. Based in Queensland and working across Australia, Rob is a professional firm coach with a mission to improve the lives of professional firm owners and managers and the people they work with. He has spent 30 years working in and with accounting firms and works directly with selected firms individually and in groups to drive success through a combination of coaching, consulting, training, mentoring and facilitation. Rob is a fellow of Chartered Accountants Australia New Zealand a graduate member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a fellow of the Institute of Managers and Leaders, which was formerly the Australian Institute of Management. Rob, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you, Robin. Great to be with you. And thank you particularly coming down from Queensland today. We've put on a decent day for you. Absolutely. And I have to say there was an awful lot of smoke in the air as we uh, flew down. Uh, so there's some pretty serious fires going on. There are. And um, yes, I'm heading up into New South Wales tomorrow. So thoughts are with everyone up there. Indeed. For tomorrow. Now, um, Background, why did we feel this was a, a good chat to have? Well, of course, you and I, I think, talked about this about six months ago, and it's great that it's finally happened. But for me, uh, practice management, if you like, is my thing. Just as you're very passionate about tax, I'm super passionate about practice management. And that came about, I guess, originally probably when I was at Pricewaterhouse. I had a pretty uh, traditional start. I started as a young graduate auditor in, in Which Sydney. would have been Big 8 back then. Um, y- yes, probably was. Probably yes. was. Uh, I know I had an offer from a few different of the Big 8s and chose Pricewaterhouse. I think a good cultural fit for me. So I did 10 years client work, uh, including a stint overseas uh, in the UK. And then my last role doing client work is as a business services manager. So certainly tax was important uh, uh, in that role. So a fairly conventional start. Indeed. But then one day I got invited to become the finance and admin manager for Pricewaterhouse in Sydney. Uh, Kind of out of the blue, really. I'd been helping the uh, business services uh, managing partner run that area of Pricewaterhouse, must have done a good job, and so uh, became the finance and admin manager. Um, Loved doing that. It's not that I didn't like doing client work, but I loved uh, doing that. Reinvented everything behind the scenes, uh, back of house systems at Pricewaterhouse. Eventually ran out of things to change and decided to leave. And funnily enough, ended up at the Olympic Games Organising Committee, which is my only role outside of the accounting profession. We don't have time to talk about that today. That's another story. Indeed. Yes. Um, But subsequent to that, I ended up uh, in a practice management role for Grant Thornton, uh, helping the managing partner in Sydney drive a lot of change there. And perhaps then the role that in some ways I might be most famous for, I became the general manager for Pitch Partners in Sydney for five and a half years. Uh, And later on, after I'd done some general business coaching, I was actually drawn back into roles and became the CEO of two different accounting firms. So without going into any specifics about individual firms and how they're run, observations about what you saw across the firms. Yeah. Do you know, the the biggest thing I learnt was that the large firms can learn from the small firms and the small firms can learn from the large firms. I remember leaving Pitcher Partners and going later, a few years later, I became the CEO of a small firm and I thought, wow, if we were doing some of the amazing things that this small firm was doing at Pitcher Partners, it would have been incredible. So, uh, you know, just because you're big or you're small doesn't mean you can't learn something from, from another firm. 
What do you think are the main challenges facing the modern day accounting practice? Gosh, you know, I think um, that they're many and diverse. Uh, look, the ones that I'm seeing, I think, firstly, uh, revolve around people. Uh, I think many firms still do uh, report challenges with finding uh, and attracting uh, or finding and keeping people. Uh, and there's a multitude of reasons uh, for, for, for that. Uh, secondly, I think many firms are uh, struggling a little bit or, or challenged by the overwhelming uh, number of options when it comes to technology uh, and, and what's Too possible. much choice? Yeah, yes, too much choice and, and this rapid pace of change where frankly you know many people I think are struggling to keep up now I think that's a broader community issue not just perhaps uh, and whatever I install today is going to be out of date tomorrow well, perhaps you know um, so I, I'm certainly seeing firms a little overwhelmed if I can put it that way uh, sometimes by that interestingly in some firms I'm still seeing um, quite commonly in fact I'm, I'm no longer surprised by this I think I was initially um, Challenges still even with something like managing the workflow inside the firms. Um, I'm still regularly seeing firms that are really not on top of that. Uh, and I, I'm no longer surprised. They pretty much expect now that every firm I visit will probably have some challenges in that regard. I, don't, I rarely see a perfect uh, solution in that regard. And then finally, perhaps in some of the, uh, uh, the, the larger firms or even some of the smaller firms, a couple of owner-related issues. Firstly, uh, owners working way too hard uh, and, and really uh, you know, forgetting the names of their children and other terrible things. Uh, and, and secondly, in, in multiple owner firms, sometimes uh, not really great alignment amongst uh, those owners, uh, which can lead to a whole range of issues. So suggesting that they're even running independent practices, if you like. Yes, and look, that, that's, I, I do sometimes see a firm that's got a, a banner on the wall that says we are such and such, but perhaps in reality they're, they're three or four or five practitioners pretty much running their own race. Yeah, okay. And if you choose to do that, that's okay, but I think what happens is... If that often, was a conscious process. Yes, a yeah. lot of them haven't actually chosen to do that and therefore it's not actually working as, as well as it could oh, well. yeah well perhaps if we delve into this in a bit more detail so i want to start with leadership now this is all in the the context of running a successful tax practice yes what does modern day leadership look like and what makes the leader of a firm successful in that role? Sure, yeah. I'm glad you said modern day leadership because I think if we asked that question, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, the answer would be different and it would have been a command and control type leadership style, which perhaps many of us associate even today with the military. Although interestingly, I got to spend a couple of days recently with the head of HR for the Air Force and the head of logistics for the Army. Uh, and it's very clear from talking to them that even in the uh, Defence Force, the command and control uh, style of leadership is much less uh, common, if you like. It's still there to a degree. So, and I think in Australia, because we are, we are doing this podcast in Australia, we have to have a, a cultural overlay for, for Australia, and that is um, we're an egalitarian country, we have this tall poppy syndrome, and so... Um, being the boss and being different to people isn't necessarily a good thing. And so leadership, I think, in, in a modern uh, organisation today is turning the pyramid on its, on its head and you are supporting the people that you work with. Of course, you're, um, you know, you, you've got to provide a, a vision, a direction for, for the business. That's, that's important. 
Um, and you've got to model the way or model the behaviours that are expected of you, you know, and that's where the values come into to play. Um, I think you've got to, as a leader, uh, be open and, in, in fact, actively encouraging, challenging the status quo and how we do things and allowing people to make mistakes and those sorts of things. Um, and also, as a leader, um, show genuine interest in your people and appreciation uh, for, for them. So if we think about that in a broad sense, and then we go, we put that into a, a tax firm, really, if you're doing some of those things, then I think you're a good leader. But based on my experience, there's one thing I would say, uh, and that is, as a leader, you've got to make the difficult decisions. And in tax firms and accounting firms more broadly, often that's around people. And when people are not performing, then sometimes you need to, of course, you need to give them every opportunity to perform and uh, manage them in a very professional and caring way. But if I had a dollar, Robin, for every time I have seen accountants thinking they're being nice by letting underperformance or poor behaviour uh, continue for a long period, then I don't think I'd need to work for the rest of my life because it is just so common. Is it equivalent uh, the parent who wants to be friends with the child yeah, instead of providing yeah, so some discipline? There, there is a little bit of that, I think. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and the reality is in most firms, if someone's underperforming or is behaving very badly, everyone else in the firm knows that. It's generally not a secret. Mm. And it can undermine their commitment to the business because they go, well, oh, actually... Maybe I don't need to work as hard or behave as well or perform as well because I don't get treated any differently to the person uh, who, who is, is not. And they do comparisons across the office. Absolutely. Mm. So, so I think a, a fundamental thing inside firms today is, yeah, sometimes you've got to make the tough decision. That's why you paid the big bucks. How do leaders adapt to the constantly changing environment? And it is changing, not just from a regulative perspective, but technology perspective, social norms, expectations. Yeah. Can anyone be the perfect leader when there's so much to contend with all the time? Uh, look, that, that, that is a good question. And I think the answer is, firstly, you need to have awareness that the change is going on. And I know, for example, when I do um, uh, facilitation of planning workshops with clients, one of the first things we actually do is we do, I call it a, a piste review. So that we look at the external environment that the firm works in and we're looking for change. We're looking in the political, uh, economic, environmental, social, technological competition and the industry more broadly, all those areas. So I think you've got to have a process to actually be looking for change. Uh, and then, of course, when you're seeing that, you've really got to have an open mind in terms of, of dealing with it. And, of course, you and I, I suspect, have seen some people who do very much have, you know, have their head in the sand and, and you know it's not going to happen. And yet, I think someone termed um, the, the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A. We live in times of volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. Oh, I don't know whether you've heard that no, before. No, I haven't, but they're four good words. They're four really good words. And a couple of my clients have actually been adopting that when we've been doing planning. They're going, you know what? We've got to be ready for those sorts of things. So I think you've got to have a framework in which to be capturing the changes and then open, of course, to adapting how you behave. Let me throw in the dynamics. In a typical tax or accounting practice, there's going to be generation gaps. Indeed. So 
Let's ignore the fully retired. They're basically out of the picture at this point. Yes. But we'll start with the baby boomers at the upper end of the profession. Sure. And by upper, I mean experience and age, not yes. necessarily. Well, I'm a baby boomer, so... Uh, okay, you proudly wear that mantle. Yes. Um, we then move into Gen X, which I'm going to proudly say um, I belong to that category. Excellent. And look, we've always been the hardest working, and any Gen Xers will agree with me. We just get on with it, we do as we're told, and we're all fully... Full of initiative and so on. So <laughs> that's my position. Now, As you wish, Robert. Thank you. That's right. We can agree to disagree. Now, below us or below me, we've got, yep. call it YZs, millennials. They've got lots of different tags. Yes. In the one office, you're going to have millennials dealing with baby boomers. Absolutely. And you spoke before about big four learning off small affairs. Yeah. I think equally, millennials can learn a lot from boomers, but I think the boomers can learn a lot from the millennials. Absolutely. You know, I talked to a lawyer who told me this fantastic story about his law firm uh, had an office sharing experiment where each owner in the law firm was teamed up with a 20-something and they shared their offices for three months. And he said, oh, Rob, I expected I was going to teach this young lady all about all sorts of things. Everything I knew. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He said, I cannot believe how much I learned from this young lady about um, the modern world and social media and technology. He said it was just mind boggling. But here's the thing, Robin, you know, I, you know, I actually, I mean, you, know, you said, yes, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, but I don't think like that. I think like we are all people. And we're all working together. And we're all human beings. In fact, to pitch partners, I had my youngest employee was 18 and my oldest was 80. That's eight zero. And they actually work together side by side. Um, And so I think we, I think sometimes for our own purposes, um, we can overplay the differences in the generations. Yes, sure. Of course, people have come into the world at different times when certain circumstances, of course, have been different. And yet to me, at our core, we're still people. But also these are tags that are put on groups of people based on when they were born. Yes, but the upper end of one is basically the bottom end of another one. Exactly right. So everybody's just on one big long spectrum. And you, you know, I, I, in the space of, you know, 24 hours, I've been told, for example, that, you know, millennial, millennials are selfish and it's all about them um, versus oh, the millennials are all about um, purpose and helping others, you know, contradictions. So, yes. And I think that's true of all of us, you know. We're all different and, and we won't necessarily conform to some broader description. So I'm not keen on big use of these descriptors. I think that if we truly understand the people in our workforce, like we get to know them, we will understand what's motivating them and we will behave accordingly. Perhaps a more relevant question based on that is, does it change the way that skills are taught? So if we're trying to skill up people within an organisation, are different generations learning in different ways? So let's yeah. get on to the skills area. Yeah, okay. Look, that is a good question. And I, and I do quite a bit of uh, training uh, within firms uh, on the non-technical side. Of course, we leave the technical stuff to you. Of course. Um, and it's interesting, again, because I am training a, a broad range of people and I'm still noticing that um, for most of them, Um, If you put a pen in their hand and you get them to write down things and you involve them in case studies and interaction with people, again, it doesn't seem to matter, you know, what so-called generation they're in, they're learning. But having said that, I totally get that we are now seeing people who are coming through who have done a lot more online learning than, than you and I would have done, certainly myself. 
uh, although when I went back to do my Master of Business Coaching degree, that had started to change and it was a bit of an adjustment, I will say, because a lot more was online. Um, but I, again, I'm not 100% sure that that's a good thing because I come back to we're all people and I'm not sure that, you know, all my, I know it's happened that quite often these people are going to be uh, learning online and so on, but I'm not sure that that's always the best way to do it. Look, I'm always going to have a more biased position because I think face-to-face training is generally more effective. Yeah, Uh, I agree. If I can see body language and dynamics and look you in the eye and understand whether you're getting it or not, I think that's more effective than talking to a bunch of people on a screen. You can immediately answer a question. It's a a much more nuanced experience. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I agree. Sourcing information, I'm coming back to tax now. So if we've got all of these sources, and if you think about, without naming any particular providers, we've got online resources, we have face-to-face conferences and seminars, the professional bodies have their own offerings. There is so much written content, social media content, and conference content. Yes. How do firms sift through this all? What's the best way of dealing with it all? How do you make decisions about where your your training dollar goes? These are challenges that a practice manager needs to sit down and think about. Yes, absolutely. And and the short answer, of course, is the technical tax training will come from tax banter. We know that, you know, that's a given. However, let me just step back a little bit because I actually think that inside firms there are three types of training that really should be um, considered and delivered on. The first is the technical training, and that, of course, Robin, is your expertise, you know, you guys are the best in the business. Um, But of course, you're not going to be the only source of that. Of course, um, people are going to subscribe to some of the usual services and so on, and that that makes sense. I do worry a little bit on the tax technical side that sometimes people are relying wholly and solely on maybe this two lines out of the Master Tax Guide, and that's not to belittle what is, of course, a very useful product, but you know, sometimes blind reliance on, on something without contextualising it. Look, it's an important point because there are so many different sources of information and, and some are the source, which is the tax law. Indeed. Then you've got interpretations of that, which are things like Master Tax Guide and Tax Handbook, etc. Yes. And then you've got other training providers like us that take the information and present it in a different form again. Yes. So... Look, it is important to go back often to source material. It is, absolutely. Um, But knowing, again, with all these different competing products, when you've got staff of different skill levels who want to learn in different ways, I think it raises some interesting questions. Yeah, and I think one one of the key things that we can do for our people is to make them aware to be filtering and and consciously thinking about, well, is this a reliable source of this information? I think that's true of life generally, of course, Mm. with uh, online, you know, and social media and so on. You know, it's almost to the stage where you look at something online and you're not actually sure whether to believe it or not. But again, if we come back to social media, there are going to be some trusted sources. If you know there are people that are worth following or organisations that are worth following, then you know that is reliable information that's coming out. Absolutely. So that's the technical training. But can I just mention two other things that I absolutely think need to be inside firms? And the the second is no real surprise. It's the non-technical training. uh, For example? So that's the leadership training. It's the management training. Communication? Communication, absolutely. It's relationship building. It's um, managing yourself like time management type stuff, if you like. Um, that's a very popular course that I run. It's, you know, people still have trouble with that. Delegating, you know, business development type activities type stuff. You can train all of these things. So there's a huge range of those things. Is it fair to say, Rob, that, and this is my experience, and I worked in a number of accounting firms before I moved into training over 20 years ago, 
so many people in my experience have been promoted through firms based on either their technical skill and or longevity that a bit like Stephen Bradbury at the Winter Olympics, everybody else fell by the wayside and yes. they ended up being promoted up through the ranks. Although, to be fair to Stephen Bradbury, he was one of the world's top skaters for quite a long time, so let's not forget that. And I have seen him present um, on his success and, of course, he put in many hours of training. Yes. It wasn't just yes. something that happened on the day. No, no. And not to denigrate anyone who has been promoted where others have fallen by the sure. wayside because you still need the skills to get there. Of course. My point is that we often see people in senior positions who don't necessarily have good people skills or management skills or executive skills which or, or business development skills. Indeed. Which are different to technical. Absolutely. And we see that not only in accounting firms where the reality is most people become managers and uh, directors or partners in firms, particularly at the smaller end of our profession, without much in the way of training at all. Um, we see it in schools. Teachers uh, become principals. Uh, Doctors run hospitals. That's a recipe for disaster. No offence to any doctors who might be listening. But again, they're brilliant doctors. They're just not great um, managers of hospitals. Is this because these skills are regarded as not as important as the technical skills? Yes. So the investment in them is not given the same importance? Short, short answer, yes. Uh, in my experience, firms are much more inclined to pay for Robin to come and de- de- deliver tax training, um, perhaps compared to me coming and delivering some leadership or management training. Yeah. Um, the third piece of training that I think people are doing, which kind of cuts over both of them in a way, although it's probably more about, often about the delivery, is um, the how we do things around here training. So inside firms, what I'm saying is, you know, all the different things that you do inside a firm uh, internally and, of course, particularly client-focused, you work out the best way to do all of those things and then you train your people in the XYZ accounting firm way to do this. And that is hugely powerful, and most firms overlook that. So processes? Yeah, yes, process. Yep. Yeah. You know, this is how we do things around here. Let's not leave it to chance. Uh, sure, we're employing smart people, but let's not have them spin their wheels trying to figure stuff out where we've done it a million times before. Uh, and so that's another important piece of training. You'd be aware, of course, that the Tax Practitioners Board and the ATO are focusing heavily on tax agents. Yes. And there are many different limbs to this but we've got the review of the tax practitioners board and the tax agent services act the review has been completed report not yet released we've got increased audit activity from the ato on things like overclaiming work-related expenses which has been well documented in this program yes indeed that is in conjunction with the board's increased focus on agents who are overclaiming systemically so in the past, the ATO would just go after the particular taxpayer. Yes. Now they still do that, but the board is going after the tax agent. And so what we're now seeing, and the ATO has been quite public in this of late, they're running some visits around the country. Um, we're seeing them in some central New South Wales towns and south coast of New South Wales, etc. I think I saw a few headlines to that effect just the other day. Yes. And I have spoken with some accountants who have received visits. Oh, yeah. And they tend to be about 10-minute visits to the businesses in the main street, which will be the hairdresser and the cafe and the usual, and maybe an hour and a half with the accountant firm. And what questions are being put to the firm are things not about your tax technical or your particular client matter or this interpretation of that ruling or that provision. It's your training, your work papers, your quality control, review of staff. And it's so, so important that when firms are looking at making sure they're attending enough CPD and getting out there and going to the conferences and and pressing the flesh. But their staff are also getting that 
school base. Yes. And it's something that I don't think firms should underplay or underestimate because the regulators regard that as being very important. And Colin Walker, who many would be familiar with uh, working assistant commissioner with the ATO in um, the compliance and intermediary space, they've often talked about this pyramid of accountants or um, tax agents that concern them. And they've spoken about the really aggressive ones that are, as in the criminal space and Phoenix yeah. activity and black economy. Yes. And then there's a, another couple of thousand where they're concerned about whether there could be some black economy activity or failure to lodge and this sort of thing. Below that, they're still talking something like another seven or 8,000 agents where they're concerned about CPD of staff, quality review processes, because if the staff aren't getting the right direction, support or training, then it leaves the tax agents exposed because there could be false returns being lodged and prepared, um, not deliberately, but just inadvertently. Yeah. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that well, because well, it's a huge area. That, to me, that kind of goes to the heart of the how we do things around here training. Which is the third part you're talking yes, about. Yes. yes, and the bit that I think people often overlook. Um, and certainly... Uh, I think that's an area to invest more time in. I think that the generally accountants undervalue um, systems and process. You know, we're all smart people, we know what we're doing. Yes, that's true to a degree. But I think the tax office is actually looking for just what, what I'm talking about. It's actually, have you systemised, have, you you know, have you got processes in place that provide guidance for your people? Look, another perspective. Um, two aspects to this. One is when I've talked about cases over the years, if I run my mind across the cases where they've typically lost or they didn't stand a chance or it was against them, we've got a theme of lack of evidence. Yep. Lack of corroborating written evidence that is not consistent with their story. And on a recent podcast with Julianne Jakes, we talked about litigation and evidence. And she said that if you go before the courts or the tribunal saying one thing, but all the written evidence says something else, you're always going to have a problem. That's never going to end well. And if I think about missing logbooks, Div 7A loan mm -hmm. agreements, um, we haven't got resolutions that establish where distributions were sent, and, and the list is long. Yeah. If I talk about the conversations that I've had with accounting firms over the years, this is the really boring bit of what they do. Yeah. Who wants to fill out resolutions and sign off unit certificates that go into the unit register? And who wants to do director's resolutions that agree that something was done in a certain way? But that is exactly the evidence that is looked at and given very high importance to when it hits courts and tribunals in tax disputes. And that's the way we do things around here, process and training that drives that. It's like, yes, it's boring, but it is what we do because it's the right thing to do. Yes. And not only is it a legal requirement to do these things, but... I'm a big fan for removing doubt. Yeah. And if there is a, a particular position you're taking, but there isn't something to back it up, then of course it can be called into question. Of course. If you've got evidence that establishes what you're doing, then that proves your case. And so I just feel evidence and documentation and all this, what I call boring stuff, yeah. um, is so, so important when it comes to removing doubt in tax disputes. A absolutely. And Robin, do you know what I find a little scary in all of this is I've had clients who've taken over fees from another accountant or taken over their firm and uh, discovered that the quality of the advice that they've been given uh, to their clients was terrible. You know, you mentioned Division 7A and, and I've had two or three clients where the previous accountants have either blatantly or willingly ignored Division 7A or just didn't understand it. And it's not like at its basic level it's hard to understand. Um, and that's a little terrifying and frankly those people 
let's run them out of their profession, hey? Yes. Look, it still happens. There'll be, uh, and it's always inherited from another accountant. Yes. But it could well be the retiring firm or merging firms where a client base is taken over. Yeah. And I can remember years ago, there was a firm that took over, a, um, it was in a regional part of Australia, took over another firm's client base. And one of the first questions they asked is, oh, there's this um, uh, property in the balance sheet of the company. And when they went back to the client, the client said, no, no, we sold that years ago. Oh, goodness. And what the previous accountant had done is the question hadn't been asked. They'd sold the property and, of course, taken the cash out of the company. Yeah. So they replaced a, a property with a loan account, Div 7A. But because the question had never been asked, the client never told the previous accountant. Yeah. It had sat there for all this time as property. And then the right question was asked by the incoming accountant, and it's a pretty easy thing to identify yeah. when you ask the right questions. Yeah. And interestingly, again, asking the right questions to a large extent can be systemized. I was about to say it's process. It is, absolutely. If it's sitting on a checklist or yep. it's sitting on a, a process that's been pre-agreed yeah. to. Yeah. I don't want to get on an airplane if the pilots are not using a checklist. Do you? I can assure you they use many checklists. They do. Of course, that's where the idea of checklists came from, from the aviation. Yes. So, you know, we undervalue this stuff, I think. Uh, I'd yeah. also go so far as to say I think lawyers are better at this than accountants because it's drilled into them about documenting everything and keeping file notes yep. and um, being able to prove things that have uh, positions that have been taken. Yes. Accounting yes. firm, I think, could probably tie yeah. this up a little bit. Actually, the insolvency practitioners within accounting are often very good documenters of things. But they're often involved in litigation or yes, court appearances. Right. Correct. Yes. For that reason. Yes. yes. So, Rob, soft skills, how important are they? They are hugely important, and I think we've already alluded to this, but the key uh, aspect of this is the more senior you become in your tax practice, the more important those soft skills are. So the, non, the technical skills become a given. And of course, you know, you have to maintain those, but then you've got this extra layer uh, of the non-technical skills, which, you know, in terms of leading and managing people, dealing with clients uh, and other third parties. So that whole basket of things which we were alluding to before is so much more important the more senior you get. Let me throw another dynamic into it. Increasingly, we've got, I'm going to call it increased awareness. I'm not going to say that necessarily it has increased, but I think there's increased awareness of mental health issues. Sure. And... The extent to which practitioners have the skills to deal with these situations or circumstances that clients are experiencing. And I'd call that in the soft skills category. Mm. It's about managing yep. client relationships, yep. being able to identify when they're not coping or when yep. life is tough, yep. whether it be financial problems that are causing stress and anxiety or whether it's personal issues like illness or marriage breakdown or whatever. Yeah. But to me, that's another part of soft skills that goes outside the traditional technical skills that anyone needs. Yes. But I still think they're necessary skills. Yes. And I think what we probably, you know, it's probably a symptom of a more complex world that we live in, that we're seeing more of more of these things, I think. Um, and, and we have to tread with caution here, of course, because the reality is most of us are not going to be well equipped to deal with, mm. uh, you know, helping people with mental health issues. But I think what we do need inside the accounting space is... Um, some training to know the signs uh, and when to sort of be suggesting a, a referral to someone. Absolutely. Um, and, and I don't know about you, I heard uh, Andrew Conway, the president of the uh, 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 IPA, uh, yes. tells the story of an accounting firm owner who took a call from his client and he said, oh, you know, oh, hi, Robin, oh, I don't think I can go on and hung up the phone. The practitioner had the, the good sense, I think they must have put a few pieces together very quickly. They rang triple zero, they knew where this person was. Sure enough, the person had actually tried to kill themselves. Oh gosh. 
Um, but the point in sharing that story is the relationship between the client and the accountant has a very high level of trust. It does. And it is going much further, I suspect, than many accountants realise. So without this imputing... poor person, you know, the accountant was basically the only person they could kind of make their cry for help to. I was going to say, without imputing facts, it sounds like he was the last person he was calling before. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, whether they were seriously trying to kill themselves yeah. or it was a cry for help. Yep. I don't know this, but it, I mean, it's an awful story. But it shows the power of the relationship with absolutely, the accountant. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, having some awareness, and I think in society we're generally we're becoming a lot more uh, aware of these things. Um, having, having some awareness of what are some of the signs and perhaps, you know, making some suggestions to people about, hey, are you okay? Could, could, you know, could we put you in touch with someone? And there are so many studies done with the accountant as the trusted advisor, not just financially. Um, you know, they will often be the person who, uh, the person that the client turns to for counsel or advice on Absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. And this is why it's such, been such a big issue with the financial planning and, and the licensing of financial advice because so many accountants feel, well, they're the first person the client will want to turn to, and yet unless they're licensed, they can't give you yes, advice. Yes, And we all know that the conflicts yes. that this is creating. Indeed. Yes. Crazy, crazy. All right. What about on to the anatomy of a firm? If we start breaking down what a firm looks like, we've got an ageing demographic. I haven't got the figures to hand, but it's something like three quarters of tax agents are, are male and over 50, something to that effect. So we're going to, and company auditors probably even more so. Yeah, I would suspect so. Um, trying to make auditing a, a very attractive and sexy profession for a young person coming in, um, that is a challenge. Same for tax agents. Yeah. So as our profession is ageing, there have been, again, plenty of discussions and consultation papers about the yeah. future of the tax profession. What does all this look like where retirement is looming for many of the baby boomers? We are seeing, look, on both sides, more acquisitions where firms are being taken over yep. and more mergers, but we're also seeing younger people breaking away and setting up their own practices. Yes. So what are you seeing as a general trend out there? Yeah. Look, it's interesting. I think the ATO, didn't they publish some stats recently that the average age of a tax agent has actually come down a fraction, funnily enough? Uh, I can't quote you the chapter and okay. verse, uh, so it's not really evidence, is it? But uh, uh, I'm sure I saw something published by the tax office. It was a very small... I know they published some figures recently, but they also took into account staff working under tax agents. And ah, maybe that, that was, was the, uh, the overall... Maybe that was the sting right. in the tail. But I yes, think registered yes. tax agents were still got predominantly um, older. So, you're right. look, I'm seeing a very broad range of things going on. Certainly, I am seeing a number of firms with owners that are uh, baby boomers, as you say, um, who are uh, have retired or who are looking to, to move on. And this brings into play this whole notion of succession. And succession for, for most people in firms is going to be one of three things. It's going to be, um, I'm bringing through some smart young people inside my firm who are going to take it over. And for many people, that's actually the ideal because, you know, maybe they were the founder of this firm, they want it to continue, you know, it's their baby, if you like, you know. Um, sadly, I'm seeing some firms not being able to do that. And I think that's a bit of an indictment on the quality of leadership uh, inside the firm. And frankly, you know, some young people are looking at the owners of accounting firms who are uh, working ridiculous hours, who are stressed, who don't always behave particularly well, and going, well, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. You know, I, my, my world looks different to that. 
So that's an enormous challenge. I think for the firms that do it well, it's still presenting to the younger ones coming through a really great opportunity. I still think being an owner of an accounting firm, a tax practice, whatever it might be inside our profession is a great thing. Um, so that's the first option. The second one will be a straight sale. You know, hey, we're done, we're selling to a third party. And certainly you may be aware in Australia at present, particularly at the smaller end, there are far more um, buyers than sellers, in fact. And that's a bit of putting a, you know, a bit of pressure on price as well. Now, I'm not a practice broker, but I talk to people who are, and there's certainly plenty of activity in that space. And then the third option might be someone might go, well, actually, if I merge uh, into another firm or I'm acquired by a firm, that might provide the succession that I need because they might have the young ones coming through or some existing people who will take over uh, my, my holding. So I'm seeing a really quite a diverse range of things. So there's no one particular thing happening? No, I don't think so. Um, but I do say to, to, to all, all of my clients, you know, uh, as an owner, as a leader, you know, you want to be a role model. You want your young ones to want what you're doing. That's the ideal, I think. And not just keep them um, within the profession, but of course, keep them within your firm. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Let's talk about staff, attracting and retaining staff mm-hmm. and outsourcing and offshoring because we're seeing some changes in the profession here. So let's start with how we attract and retain staff. Yes, some big topics here. Yes. Uh, and I could talk for hours on this, Robin, and I know you won't let me, but I will try and uh, abbreviate this uh, for you. So when we talk about attracting and retaining, I actually think there's four things. So it's attracting, engaging, developing, and then that leads to retaining. So let me give you a couple of bullet points on each of those, sure. if I may. So to attract people, But for firms that have already got people in them, your people are going to be your advocates. They're going to be the ones who are at the barbecues talking to their friends saying, hey, this is a really great place to work. I love my job. I love my job. And in fact, I worked in a firm where we had achieved that. And I took a phone call from one of our um, competitors who said, Rob, will you stop stealing my my people? (laughs) And I said, we are absolutely not stealing your people. But what happens is just what I described. They're talking. To give you an anecdote, I was flying back from Adelaide to Melbourne many, many years ago. This would be well over 15 years ago. Qantas Club, Friday afternoon. And I went to get a drink at the bar and the barman, as he was fixing my drink, said, do you like your job? And I was still at Web Martin back in those days. And I said, I love my job. Why are you asking? And he said, I'm doing a poll. Wow. Friday afternoon, business traffic, just finding out who enjoys their job. I I don't know what the answers were. And I said, how are you going? And he said a third of people are happy in their jobs. Yeah. And I said, isn't that, that a is, shame? Isn't that, that sad? That is. That is. And I looked around the lounge and thought, gosh, two thirds of people here aren't happy in their jobs. Well, you've only got to see it on their faces in most cases. Yes. Like you, I spent a bit of time in uh, airport lounges and it's uh, pretty obvious to me. Yes. So, so the attracting bit, you, you know, your team members are, are going to be your advocates. But of course, I think in 2019 and beyond, you need to have a good online presence because, uh, you know, you're going to be wanting to attract some younger people typically. And you need to have a story. I don't mean you make up stuff, but the true story about why should I work for you? Why should I work with you? What's special about your firm? And every firm will be able to have a story. Um, And you just need to be able to to tell it with some passion. So once you've attracted them, you're not going to retain them unless you can engage and develop them. The development that's developing is reasonably easy in the sense, of course, that's about the training, giving them opportunities. Hey, take, take the more junior people to meetings with you. Let them learn from you, you know. 
often uh, much overlooked, I have to say. Have a personal and professional development plan uh, for, for them individually. The engaging stuff, you know, that is about showing that you care, show appreciation, show recognition, make sure it's clear what's expected of them. Pay them well, but have high expectations. Um, these are the sorts of things you know, that make it a great place to work so that when they wake up in the morning, just as I have for most of my career, couldn't wait to get in there to keep going. You know, Sleeping's a waste of time. There's too many fun things to do in the office. What's the adage? You'll never work a day in your life if you love what Absolutely. you do. Absolutely. I feel that way. And I know you do too. Yes, even I do. though I know you work extremely hard. Um, you and I both, I think, feel the same way about what we do. So you've got to create that. And if you can engage them in development, then I think you're going to retain them. And I don't necessarily buy into this notion that, you know, in the current um, times, people have to keep moving and change jobs on a regular basis. I get that that has been happening more than it was, so it's more accepted. But in your firm, I think you could create something special so that people want to be there and they don't need to move. We have clients where the partners started as grads. Yeah. Now, in some cases, you could interpret that as saying, well, they've never had true experience outside that firm and they haven't been exposed to other cultures. On the other hand, mustn't it be an amazing place to work if they've never felt the need to move on to something Absolutely else? Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think uh, you know, yes, we've got to attract them in the first place, but it's that engaging and developing that is going to make them uh, stay. And the uh, developing comes back to those three levels of training we spoke about earlier. Absolutely right, yeah. Now, the two biggies, outsourcing and offshoring. Outsourcing, I really be uh, treat as um, bringing in outside assistance, contract to help or whatever. Yes. Whereas to me, offshoring is going overseas, of course. Yes. So two different scenarios. Offshoring, I think, is really a subset of um, outsourcing. I agree. You know, you're you're seeking third-party input. And I think the reasons you do that traditionally have been um, we might need to fill a skill gap. So I might outsource some complex tax to Web Martin because they've got some consultants who can help me with that. Yes. Or I might uh, have a valuation that needs to be done. Not my thing. I'll go and get a firm that specialises in that. That, that can be outsourced. Um, secondly, um, you might need capacity. So I've got a whole bunch of people who are doing these things, um, you know, doing this type of work. I haven't been able to find more of them and I need to... I need to f- fill that capacity. I've got work coming in the door, but I can't get it done. And this is always the balance when you're running your own business, and I have run my business before, is that you're trying to uh, manage the growth in the business with the increased clients and the dollars coming in the door with the resourcing to manage it. And if you go and invest too early in resources, then you're basically outweighed there compared to the income coming in. But if you bring in too much work too soon, then you haven't got the ability to service it. So you've got to grow both in tandem. Absolutely. It's a very common conversation for me to be having that with uh, accounting firm owners and managers. And then, of course, the last reason that you might be looking to outsource, and this is really what leads to the offshoring, I think, to some degree, to a large degree, has been when you might be looking to reduce the cost of delivering something. And you and I both know that probably in Australia, this first started probably around superannuation. It was probably the first area where offshoring started happening. Um, And you can kind of put a box around it. Superannuation is, at one level, horrendously complicated, but at another level, uh, you can put a bit of a box around some... It's very process-driven. Yes, that's right. And so it lends itself very much to the offshoring approach. Nowadays, of course, we're seeing a much broader range of things being you know, sent offshore. I, I did a study tour um, in the Philippines some years ago, I looked at what was going on there. I've been to India as well as the Philippines. Those for Australia are probably the two main uh, locations. 
Um, and I think people have largely been driven by cost. Although I've got one client who is philosophically opposed to sending jobs offshore, but has done it anyway because they just haven't been able to find people to do the work. Okay. Which is pretty incredible. I always think of two things when it comes to offshoring, Rob. I, I, one issue is security. And I'm talking about security of data. And yep. there are different models, but many of them will actually be employees of the Australian firm. So they're not contractors or a third party that we're engaging. They're actually yes. part of the practice. The directors of partners will visit the countries to check on their staff and make sure culturally yep. they're still Absolutely. part of it. And I think the second issue is this idea of quality control. Mm. So as long as you can manage the security aspects, and so much is cloud-based and can be managed through that now, but also the quality control of the work that's being done. They seem to be the two major challenges. Yeah. And finding and, the right people, of course. Look, the, the, secur- the security one um, is pretty easily dealt with, frankly. And, I, I, you know, if, if, like me, you've visited some of these places offshore where the work is being done, um, they have a much higher level of security than you do in your office. Uh, let me tell you, Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. Australian Accountant. Okay. Um, uh, the good providers... Of, of people for accountants in Australia have security beyond anything we see in Australia. Uh, and of course, uh, that is not just about physical security, but of course, it's about uh, online security. Yes. So uh, on the whole, so long as you do your due diligence and you see that they're doing the right thing, I think that's a non-event. I want to remind all our listeners that, of course, you're going to need authorization from your clients where you're using things like third-party cloud-based store, um, storage of data. And this comes back to the Tax Agent Services Act that you're not permitted to share your client's data or information with anyone else without their consent or unless you're under a legal obligation so to do so. Specifically an engagement letter to engagement make sure needs to that's with been signed off uh, by the client. Absolutely, yes. You're absolutely right, Robin. Now, the second bit where you talked about quality. Uh, again, I'm going to come back to process and systems uh, uh, because we, we need those. And in fact, if, if, if you... You know, you kind of get by without process and systems in Australia. You will not get by without process and systems once you start to offshore stuff. Okay. And so uh, the, the firms that are doing this best actually are integrating those people into their firm and they're treating them in many ways just as if they were in the, in the same office. Uh, they're giving them the same training. They're involved in the same meetings. They're fully integrating them. And I have to say I see that working incredibly well in many instances. I've got to think back to the early 90s, I'm showing my age now, uh, when I began with Arthur Anderson in the audit division. And we used to have national training when we first started. And it was actually Australasian based. So we're all sent to Canberra, but we had India and Philippines and New Zealand and lots of countries came together in our region. And also in the time I spent there, we had people seconded from overseas offices from America, London, whatever. The tick marks that we used in our work papers for audit purposes, were standardised globally. And I remember it occurring to me at the time when I was a young grad, I thought, my goodness, the control they've got over us all. We're globally, we're using the same marks on work papers. But I thought the standardisation even back then, that you could bring someone in from another country and they would understand the processes because they'd been trained the same way. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. Great example, and that's exactly what we still need today. And probably even more so when you start offshoring. More so when you're offshoring. Mm. The the, the one small challenge that I think longer term for for the profession with the offshoring, and it's happening on a very large scale, there's no question, um, I do wonder longer term what's going to happen when we're all starting to look for experienced accountants in Australia if a lot of the younger uh, jobs have, have disappeared. I was about to ask you about that. 
Because it's occurred to me as well that if these basic, what I'm called the debits and credits, the, the processing is now being yeah. done by people offshore. Yeah. If we're looking for someone at the manager level, even moving into partner level, who, let's move forward 10, 15 years from now, never did the work that we were doing when we were grads. Yeah. I think it's going to perhaps reveal an interesting lack of skill set yes. in years to come. Yeah, look, I, I think we are going to see some challenges. And this is not to be critis- critical of, of the offshoring because offshoring is just part of the global phenomenon whereby if something can be digitised... Or done more cheaply. Well, if it can be digitised, it will naturally migrate to be done at the location where it can be done at the lowest cost yes. for the quality that is acceptable. Yes. And it's not just in our profession, but across everything. Manufacturing you know. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a global movement, if you like, and it, it, it's unstoppable. Further question. If indeed there does lead to a lack in skill set because this hack work is being done by, look, it could even be artificial intelligence in years to come. Now, we haven't even gone there during this no, discussion, which no. I have had in a previous discussion with Alan Fitzgerald. I think it's interesting, are these skills even needed in the future? So could we end up promoting someone to partner or manager who doesn't have all the skills that we traditionally were trained to do, but maybe the roles will change and those skills aren't needed because they will always be done by someone cheaper offshore or by artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I know there's certainly some people in, in, in our profession who hold the view that the offshoring, in a sense, is a temporary measure until uh, technology basically catches up and takes over a lot of the work that perhaps is being offshore. And we've got the modern day robot doing it instead. Yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't got time to go in that t- 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 into that today, but, <laughs> but it's, it is a fasc- interesting. It's, a, it's a fascinating thought, yes. Rob, I wanted to ask you, you recently spent four days in June this year at the conference in Las Vegas, and this is run by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. That's right. Which in Australia, we've got Chartered Accountants and we've got CPA Australia. And they are the two major accounting bodies. IPA is, of course, the third major body. But in America, the AICPA is their biggest body. It is the dominating body. There's no question. So what were your observations from four days? They're very interesting. Um, Gee, they go hard in the States. The conference, you could your first session at 7 a.m. and the last session at 7 p.m. was pretty much how it went for the whole four days. They they go hard. Um, Fantastic. Firstly, accountants in the States are like accountants in Australia. They love their clients, they will do anything pretty much to benefit their clients. Um, What was really interesting though, a couple of things which are are relevant I think for for you and your listeners. Firstly, they do a survey every year of the smaller firms in the States, up to about 50 people, which is the smaller firms in the States. Their top five issues uh, in their 2019 surveys, number one, finding qualified staff. Again, some common ground in in Australia here with that. Yes. Number two, keeping up with changes and complexity of the tax laws. Now, that's interesting because in Australia, we probably would not have that high-ish up the list, although it remains a challenge. But you would know better than me that in the States, of course, we have income tax uh, across a state-by-state basis. And the accountants talked to me and said, oh, Rob, you know, if you've got clients that are working across the States... It's pretty hard work to, to keep on top of, of Look, their the tax. system is more complex because they have both federal and state imposed yeah. taxes. Um, our system, uh, I guess we've got our own state taxes, the form of payroll tax and duty and land tax. 
But look, I've, I'm quite comfortable that sitting up there at number two because yeah. I think the complexity of the tax system is equally an issue here. So, yeah, yeah yes. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, so look, it is certainly. Um, the next one was seasonality and, and workload compression. Uh, my understanding is they do have a slight, somewhat more compressed tax season, as they call it. And in the States, many accountants just assume that they will work every weekend for a period between about Valentine's Day and Anzac Day. Not that they celebrate Anzac Day, but... Uh, Which is a relatively short period. Whereas yes. in Australia... Look, I can think that our quiet time used to be July, we'd do our filing and wait for the work to come in the door. But with the advance of technological solutions for clients and businesses, they press a button on the 1st or 2nd of July and they're ready to go. They wonder why you haven't got it done. Correct. Work is coming on the door faster than ever. Yeah. And this year in particular, accountants nationally have said to me in sessions that there was no quiet time. They've yep. got basically a full 12 months of compliance season these days. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing pretty much the same thing. And technology is creating this expectation in, in a sense. So that was number three. Number four, um, managing privacy and security risks. Again, I think we're, we, you know, sadly, I think we're going to see some big stories come out in Australia over a period of time, you know, uh, around that. So I think that makes sense. Um, just last Friday, I went to a, um, an event where a security, IT security expert spoke. And he said this will only increase. Yeah. Um, the the advent of hacking and cybersecurity issues and looking after data is only going to get worse. Yeah. I think we can now add to death and taxes, uh, you know, uh, cyber breaches and those sorts of things as, as, as a certainty for most of us. Agreed. Um, and the fifth one was developing uh, and uh, implementing a succession plan. So again, we've talked a little bit about that. Very common. So there's a lot of commonality. Um, two things that struck me as being a bit different, however. Uh, firstly. Um, from a technology point of view, I think we understand that they're probably behind us from a cloud accounting point of view. And many people probably haven't stopped to think about why that is. But it strikes me that it's, um, you know, the, the killer app for cloud accounting is bank feeds. And in America, there's, I don't know, like a thousand banks. In Australia, write 16 bank feeds and you are done. Right, a thousand bank feeds maybe in American. So that, that to me is one of the key reasons why they are behind us. Um, but people, there is huge momentum happening in the States and I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some stage we, we see that, you know, that American bus overtake us, if you like, on the highway uh, because, they figure it all out. you know, they have, you know, it's the home of Silicon Valley after all. And some of the other conversations that are going on uh, seem to me to be much more advanced. And even the AICP themselves, they've raised $40 million from the top 100 firms in the States. They actually put their hand out and said, put some money in the pot. They've got $40 million to work on the future of audit uh, and, and cool technology stuff. Wow. And the last thing I'll mention is in the States, family office is big. Now, some of your listeners probably are doing a bit of family office work. Yes. Um, some of the stories that I was hearing were just extraordinary. I spoke with one lady. She was head of tax in this family office. And I said, oh, so how many families do you look after? Oh, uh, just the one. I said, oh, how many people on the team? She said, oh, 35. Gosh. And then she said, oh, well, that doesn't count the 100 others who are on the foundation side. And she goes, who would have thought it was harder to give away the money than to make it? So 135 people to working manage. for a single family. Extraordinary. And they were oil billionaires, as it turned out. Um, now, the Americans have great depth and breadth of wealth, but I do think in Australia, 
maybe there's greater opportunity for accounting firms to, to do more. Absolutely. I don't think they need to be sacking the maid, as one of the accounting firms had done that day. Um, but I think there's opportunity. And certainly for a financial perspective and investment and superannuation, there's yeah. a lot to manage. Yeah, yep. absolutely. So, uh, yeah, really interesting. Final observations. Uh, the big question, what does the future of the profession look like? Crystal ball, 10 years from now? Yeah, look, I mean, we can't even predict the weather, can we? So um, do you know what I will say? I'll, I'll say two things. I think if you want to be challenged on what the future might look like in our profession, go and read a book called The Future of the Professions by Richard and Daniel Susskind. Uh, they write some really interesting stuff that actually challenges the way we think about the future because their, their view, um, and whether, whether you agree with it or not, I think they force us to think about this. And they I have to say they present some pretty compelling evidence in some cases, is that the professions, accountants, lawyers, doctors, are not going to be as important and prominent as they are in society today. Uh, they think that the, the you know, technology and, and, in fact, society's changing view of certain things is desperately so they have an almost I'd call it a dystopian view of the future if if we were a bit more optimistic and we look I think there might be a utopian view which says we know that the accountant is trusted right you and I have talked about that earlier so what we need to be doing is to maintain that trusted relationship with our clients and be walking side by side with our clients or perhaps even leading them and be that indispensable source of insights and wisdom for our clients. And of course, you know, we, we all understand that um, there's a lot of work that goes into um, delivering compliance services to clients. That's going to continue, although, you know, we are seeing some interesting developments across the world around that, aren't we? Um, so I think it's going to put more importance on this relationship for what we often now talk about being advisory services and so on. But the relationship stuff, you know, we can't replace uh, with a machine. And so that, I think, is going to be the point of difference, you know, walking beside or perhaps leading our clients, providing that, you know, being an indispensable source of insights and wisdom. And still opportunities? Absolutely. In the next 10 years, certainly. You know, I think it's a great time to be in our profession. You know, we've got fantastic tools to, to use. Uh, in a sense, it's never been easier. And that's why, of course, we're seeing some of the young ones jumping out and doing it themselves, because... There aren't too many barriers, really. And isn't it great to still see that entrepreneurial spirit? It is indeed. Well, on that note, uh, thank you for coming in this afternoon. A pleasure, Robin. Great to chat. I've enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.